Suzanne Stabile. Welcome to the Enneagram Journey. Today's podcast is one that I'm particularly interested in, hopeful about, and really have the heart for. It'll be the first of many, I hope, like it, because my work is taking uh, a new turn. If you don't know much about my work, I work with something new every year. And as long as I can do that, I'll feel like I'm still growing and still using the Enneagram in appropriate ways and not boring to myself or other people. And my new work with the Enneagram in 2018, at least part of it, and in 2019, is going to be Enneagram and Recovery. So today's podcast, I have three people who matter a lot to me, who are articulate about their experiences with recovery. They're all very different. And the four of us are going to talk about that. Joel, my son, um, our son, uh, Joel doesn't like it when I say my, when it relates to the children. Do that too. Our son, Joel, is a seven on the Enneagram, going to participate in the conversation. My friends uh, from Austin, Nathaniel and Elizabeth Chapin, are also on the podcast today to talk with us about recovery. Honestly, I'm thankful that I don't have a list of questions because then I get too controlling and uh, I am too directive, I think, about where conversations go. And I think that's a big mistake when people are willing to talk about vulnerability and recovery experience is certainly that. The last introductory piece I want to say is that I have found my work in the recovery community to be both rewarding and disconcerting. Rewarding because people who show up for the most part are really trying to be honest and look at themselves and their lives and um, how they contribute to a lack of health and relationships. But disappointing because I know so many people who are secretive about recovery. Mm. And I think anything that's kept in the dark is uh, presumed negative and gets bigger than it is, actually, which is a big thing to say about recovery. So I think I'll start with any of the three of you going first and then the other two can follow and maybe just a few minutes about your relationship to recovery. Hmm. Um, well, I'm a I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober seven years and I think uh, the first year of being sober I was doing I was deep in the program and doing the twelve steps and I think probably the most alive I have ever felt and kind of high in a way. I know that sounds weird, but also Nathaniel's father died at the same time, which is another reason I was present to it. Because I was doing the 12 steps, I and because I was kind of holding the container for that and not doing a whole lot else except what I had to do as a mother, it just gave me this openness and this ability to see how everything was connected in life that kind of 
once that went away, it's like you're always looking for that again. It was a spiritual high, as mm-hmm. you could say, mm-hmm. right? So seven years have gone by, and I think what it what it ends up being about is just emotional sobriety. And for four, I think that's really a lot um, to, A, know that your emotions pass, that they come and go, to know that just because you have emotions doesn't mean uh, you get to put them all over everybody. Um, you don't get to use them as an excuse for behavior. Also, specialness, I think, is a complicated word for a four and an addict because addicts are really good at feel like using specialness as an excuse for behavior mm-hmm. and talking them into how they're uh, not part of the rules or they're different from that whole situation. So I think my ongoing sobriety daily is about managing my um, my emotions, boundarying my emotions, and bring, I mean, bringing up doing, honestly, I'd say stance work is my sobriety work. For anybody who's listening who doesn't know stance language, let me just say that um, there are three centers of intelligence, thinking, feeling, and doing. And we all take in information with one, and that is our dominant center. It's uh, anytime something happens in the world, we respond with either what do I think, what do I feel, or what am I going to do. And twos, threes, and fours respond first with what do I feel. Five, sixes, and sevens respond first with what do I think. And eights, nines, and ones respond first with what am I going to do. Stances are determined by which one of those is repressed. And it's repressed from between the ages of seven and eleven until whatever age you are now. Threes, sevens, and eights are feeling repressed. Fours, fives, and nines are doing repressed. And ones, twos, and sixes are thinking repressed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, uh, so I guess when my emotions are, when I can tell that I'm not balanced, then I know I have to bring up doing, doing, usually that means doing my work, doing my painting work. Mm -hmm. Because out of keeping that going in a, in a, you know, with rigor and with discipline Mm -hmm. comes a sense of satisfaction. And the satisfaction makes me feel, you know, I have equanimity. Yeah. And that's the only way to get there. That's very interesting to me because I hadn't really thought about that in those terms. And and so it would be, it, what I would draw from that is that you can, in some ways, manage your feelings by doing. That's right. Which is very interesting because the way I manage my feelings is by thinking. Uh huh. Right. Uh huh. And your your repressed is what thinking. Oh, so the thing, oh, I see. I see. You I see, see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to yeah. me. Uh-huh. Is that we we both have a just plenty of emotion and feelings. Right. But when I'm off, it's because. My feelings are too big and my thinking is too small. That's right. And your doing is too small. It's just very interesting. Yes. Yeah. The Enneagram just is true. It's, it's just true. true. It's true. And so, I mean, I, I shouldn't say this because it's just not true for everybody. It just isn't. But for me, stance work is more 
helpful to me than going to AA meetings all the time. Now that said, I know I know when I need to pop over to a meeting. I mean, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, they're getting at the same truth. They're getting at the same truth, but there's, to me, there's a real arc of activity with stance work. Like I know if I, if my goal every day is to get up and say, what's mine to do and how much permission can I give myself to do it? Uh, that to, to do that, to wake up every day and say that to myself, that's, that's 12 step work, but that's how I phrase it for myself. Right now, right. That's good. I know exactly what you're talking about in the difference between when you need a meeting and when you need to do Enneagram work. Hmm. Because I I do the same thing. So I'll say to Whitney on random days, my wife, Mm -hmm. and it's pretty random. Like, I'm going to a meeting today. Mm -hmm. And it's where, because you brought up stance work, I'm dominant thinking as a seven. And there are times when things aren't lining up. You know, 12 steps, there's not a lot to think about. It is, don't drink, follow follow the steps, Mm -hmm. come to another meeting, repeat, and so on. Whereas, and and for me, with the Enneagram, what I think my alcoholism came from, stemmed from me needing just everything to be bigger. Uh And everything, you know, just life wasn't wasn't enough for me. Mm -hmm. So, parties had to be more fun. Non-parties had to be more fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, round of golf had to be bigger. You know, at double everything mm-hmm. and so on. So that now it's between combining twelve steps and the enneagram. It's I now I'm at a place where I'm really content with how things are. Like mm-hmm. I, that the day is just a day, and it's really good. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to say. When I was drinking, you know, as a seven, I it's all good, but it wasn't all good. Right. I was trying to make it better, and yeah. I was trying to do more things and mm-hmm. lying to myself, mm-hmm. even though I didn't know it. And now that I'm sober, I've been sober almost two years now. When I say it's all good, like even and sometimes I realize I do this. I'll say it's all good, and then I'll think about it. Mm-hmm. it yeah, it is all good. Getting sober, twelve steps, introducing the enneagram. To my sobriety work has just filled in all the missing pieces. Mm-hmm. And between those two, whenever there is a problem, and whenever I do have a question, there's always an answer in one of those, for me at least, yeah. in one of those two tools. I can yeah. always find it in any in the Enneagram, or I can find it in the big book, plain mm-hmm. and simple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um, wonder, as a codependent, mother and a two you know I've often said that I I, I've had a hard time accepting that being codependent is wrong (laughs) because as a two I have every gift for it right it's like it's how I'm put together yeah and so it's like what happened with that (laughs) do I have to take all the responsibility for that I totally get that but you know I'm always cautious always cautious to say I don't think the Enneagram's the end-all, be-all of anything. It's just another tool. I, I think it's really helpful. I think it's really helpful because it's true and because it's accessible for everybody. And, Joel, as a mother and son, do you think, as a two and a seven and a mother and son, 
we would have found our way to where we are without the Enneagram. Absolutely not. I don't think we would have either. Because it explains we're in a lot of ways nothing alike. And and with working together now, we we spend a lot of time together and I just don't do I don't see life the way you see it. I don't want to do things the way you do things. But it helps me understand that I can see it's like a bad metaphor or something, but I can see the window. I can see where you're coming from now. Sure. Like I never saw where you were coming from before growing up, young adulthood. I just thought, what, what is she doing? <laughs> like why, why, why is she crying? Why? Yeah. What, what is all this stuff going on? And that's, that issue with me is more personified in you because of you you've got such strong feelings and mine are so repressed. So it's with everyone that, except for that you are my mother. So it is much more intimate, much more personal, and much more in my face of <laughs> with all those things. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you don't get that from 12 Steps. Like getting sober, but then not being able to relate to your family right. is going to cause that. That's hard. And that's a big problem that I've heard people having. And totally. Totally. And, and, and um, staying kind of with the static problem. So what I hear from people in meetings is all, almost um, an addiction to the place where they are. Yeah. So they get energy from the place where they are, which is friction with their mother or friction with their husband or friction with their child, right? And they want to come back meeting after meeting, and that's their identity, and that's their place. And... Um, and other people will feed that. It's and like, other you know, people you feed it. And, but, and, part of, and it's tricky because meetings are, uh, you need to have a low barrier to entry so that everyone's welcome at the table. And I get that. But then how do you have a high platform to fly off of? And so I feel like the Enneagram is the high platform to fly off of. So I come in at the meeting. Yay for the meeting. I'm not trying to belittle meetings. Yeah. But then to know my number. And how that relates to addiction and all the ways in which I feel attached to my feelings and attached to my drama and attached to all these different things and that that's my actual addiction. Or as your friend said that time, that all addicts, their primary shame is not um, their addiction. It's the shame of being themselves. And so... When you can take that and you know what that is and you can you know, do stance work so that you have satisfaction with your balanced life and then you can go forward in the day and say, I'm getting through the shame of who I am, which heals not just the drinking, but it heals the relationships. It heals the way you mother. It heals the way you paint. It heals the way you cook dinner for God. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it just heals all of it. I'm not saying I'm that way all the time, but at least I know the recipe. I know how to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Enneagram, that, that's not going to get anybody sober. Just playing it like you. It yeah, no, it, it no it's go, not going to get you sober. No. Yeah. I mean, I was doing a lot of Enneagram work before I got sober. Yeah, and I was pretending to. <laughs> so. And I <laughs> That's great. That's a little, that's awesome. I'm so glad you said that. That's great. And, and yeah, so it's, like I said, there, there's definitely a place for the meetings. And 
a place for the 12 steps and so on. And they will get so, I think getting clean is a broad stroke. There is, it's helped millions and millions and millions and millions of people, the blue book. But I think the big thing, and that's what the world and society keeps trying to come up with is now you are sober, now what to do. And so right. now, now that's leading into a 90 day, you know, I, when I got clean up, it was a 90 day inpatient. Mm-hmm. But then from there they have, you know, then it's months and years of outpatient stuff. And I think that's because people don't know how to, you know, rejoin their family. Right. They don't know how to come back from that. And that's where yeah. I think they, and then I think that's where the Enneagram picks up. And it's here, here's how you, now here's how you do life yeah. with a clear head. And yeah. Hello. Welcome to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard enough to do life even if you're not a quote addict. Right. Oh, right. Right. I mean, because that's the human condition right. is what do you do with yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, we're, it's, we are not, I mean, you know, people talk about monkey brain, right? We, yeah. we have a hard time sitting quietly in a room alone because our brain is telling us stuff constantly that we're not enough and we need to go do something. We need to go fill that spiritual itch with, mm-hmm. with something. Something. Go shopping or go chase chase some tail or, or yeah. you know, go do adrenaline stuff sure. or whatever it is. Um, so tell me, Nathaniel, as a five, I, I can, uh, with some surety, suspect that you you weren't really helpful like I was. <laughs> I helped Joel be an alcoholic. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah, I. Well, I I didn't. I don't think I was codependent beyond maybe. I wasn't really sure how to address it. Right. And Talk we, about banking. Yeah, and we would have conversations, but it was usually after Elizabeth had been drinking, and you know. You know how those go. The next day is meaningless, right? If, if one party's had drinks, when you have that conversation, that conversation is, yeah. it disappears as soon as you wake up. It's sure. gone. Um, so I was hugely relieved um, the night, the night, the evening Elizabeth said, because I'd been sort of roiling in my head about how, you know, you know where is this going? How are we going to have this conversation? What are we going to do about it? So it was a huge relief to me. Okay, I want to stop you for a second and just ask if the... How are we going to have the conversation? When are we going to have it? How is it? How, how am I going to address this and all that? In a five's head, what are you weighing? So in my head, when I would worry about how to talk to Joel, what I was always weighing was losing him. That that if I if I get in it too big, if I say too much, he's going to not talk to me altogether, or he's going to separate from me even farther. So I was always trying to keep Joel connected to you. Well, it's funny. So opposite for me. Um, I was worried that if we didn't have the conversation, I was going to lose, you know, we we were going to lose each other. Ah. And, um, so it's the same conversation, but your focus was on a different place. Right. Correct. Got it. Yeah. I was not worried about the result of the conversation I was worried about how can we have a productive conversation without what? Uh, and I would like to add that because you're doing repressed in a five, his belief that he could change 
What do you say about doing it because people, they don't believe they can change yes. the world. You don't think you can affect the situation. Because he fundamentally, as do I, believes that he cannot affect the world, that kept him from even feeling the right or entitled to steer me away from it. I mean, it's almost like he's going to give me all the space in the world to burn out and just not, I don't mean that in an unloving way, but like he's going to give me all that freedom and just pray that I did it in time for him to still be there. So I'm going to, I'm going to add to that. Joe's not here and I shouldn't speak for him because he's not here, but I'm going to, because he's a nine on the Enneagram and he's also doing repress. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the thing that I, you know, people aren't great about getting the information that nines do many, many things to avoid conflict because then that's just how they tag nines and they think everything's to avoid conflict. Mm -hmm. And Joe didn't want to address Joel's alcoholism and his drinking and, and what was happening around that. Not because he was afraid of conflict, but, but exactly for the same reason that you as a four and a five are talking about, and that is that he didn't think it'd make any difference. He didn't think he could affect it. So why risk what you do have when you don't think if you say something it's going to make any difference right. anyway? So one of the things I think we have to point out in terms of of people who are who love people who are addicts is that it, it, if you're the person closest to them, there's a chance that you're the only person who can affect it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's necessarily always true. Right, right. But to think that, and I get where it all comes from. I teach where it all comes from. I get it. And yet, I, I think it's a journey <coughs> that fours, fives, and nines really have to walk of, what am I afraid of? I think we have to ask what we're afraid of, all of us mm-hmm. who are trying to decide how to address this huge thing that's happening in our lives. Mm-hmm. Or not address it. <laughs> or, or how we figure out to not address it. Mm-hmm. Did you feel helpless, Nathaniel? Yes. Absolutely. Did you try any covert things? I was um, thinking in the back of my mind at some point, this is going to come to a head. And so how do I do it in a way that actually gets results, right? I mean, you know, so... That's such a heady thing to do because, yeah. you know, with my heart, I was trying to control everything else. So yeah. I'm calling the other children and, t- and telling them how much alcohol to bring to a family party huh. wow. so there won't be enough. You know, I mean, I, I did lots of manipulative things behind mm-hmm. the scenes from a heart space as yeah. opposed to... And I didn't because I didn't want to have a series of skirmishes that would just undermine our trust, right? I yeah, figured, that's so heady. <laughs> I figured when I, you know, if I was going to do something, it, I better figure it out. You know, it's got to be like it's got a magic pill. Right. But in the meantime, I just had all this freedom and leverage. Um, but in a way, I mean, you know, if you're an addict, I mean, it's not kind of the only way it works. Yeah. It? So and I had way, experience. It worked because I... Every time you got on me, I just, I went ballistic, right? So... Yeah. You know, what do you do? What do you yeah. do? What do you I mean, I felt trapped, right? I felt yeah. there was nowhere to go. Um, but, um, I, you know, it's been wonderful ever since. And, and the, 
that night, you know, Elizabeth said, I think I'm an alcoholic. And I didn't say anything. <laughs> I didn't say, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, um, and so that was a huge relief. And we went to an AA morning meeting the next day together. That's very cool. Uh, which was great. And yeah. I would, you know, I recommend to all your listeners who aren't, quote, addicts, if you get a chance to go to an AA meeting yeah. with somebody you love, do it. It's, it's really... Uh, it's real. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it, it. And what I, I mean, I think one thing that I don't like that our society does is there's kind of this wall where we define people on one side of the wall as quote addicts, and all the rest of us over here are right, not. Right. And that's bull. That's crazy. Yeah. It's it's that's not true. I mean, no. we all have a degree of addiction. Of course. And thankfully, a lot of us don't have it so badly that we have to go get help through the twelve step program or some sort of intervention. But we all have addictive behavior. Well, and, that, and the fact that we don't is probably a chemical difference and a yeah. brain difference. You know, there's so much new information about addiction and all that. So um, since we're family and family here, uh, Joel, you and Elizabeth, this is the question, and y'all can uh, answer it in whatever order you choose. Are there things that you wish, Joel, that I had done, mm-hmm. and Elizabeth that Nathaniel had done, and are you think are there things that you wish I hadn't done, and that Nathaniel hadn't done, or at the time was drinking just so great you really don't care, didn't care? I didn't care. I didn't. I honestly didn't know there was a problem until the last minute. Like it wasn't. I wasn't beating myself up. I wasn't thinking about how y'all were. I didn't know anyone was talking about it. It's so I, true. Yeah. So, so no, I wasn't like, um, I'm sure that's not the experience other people have, you know, that not that everybody has. I'm sure there are things where people are trying all sorts of stuff to their face. They yeah. are being yeah. more aggressive and, uh, you know, trying to not manipulate behind the scenes, but manipulate right. Yeah. On the table. Right. And that wasn't happening. And so I just, like I said, I, life's good. I'm making it. I'm making it. Mm-hmm. I'm making it. Mm-hmm. I can fix this. Tomorrow's going to be better. Mm-hmm. Next day's going to be better. Until yeah. the All those lives bottom fell out. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting that that's what you were telling yourself. Because that's what I was telling myself too. Oh. I can fix this. I love him enough to fix this. And today's better than yesterday. And tomorrow's going to be better. And I can handle this and I can fix this. So we were, that's fascinating that we were both saying the same thing about the same thing. We were both wrong. (laughs) Well, it's interesting to me how addiction is, does that on both sides. Like you see um, the addict is doing everything to feed the myopia of the addiction itself. And so whatever that is, whether it's like a very obvious feeding of that beast or a very quiet, sneaky way of feeding the beast, your all your energy is going into maintaining that and doing whatever else you need to do so that you can continue to maintain that. Uh-huh. And so that's all that energy. And then what you realize, what I realize now is people around you are also invested in maintaining the illusion. There is a real... Boy, is that ever the truth. There is a real, real reluctance of normal people to 
just look at it and say, that person has a problem. That person is an alcoholic. That person, da, da, da. And I, now that I'm sober, I see it all the time. And there's a real myth out there that people who are alcoholics ha- look a certain way, that they are the totally lost person on the corner of the street that looks homeless. And, and of course, there are those people. But there are so many ways to be an alcoholic, you know? And so unless you're just that obvious, obvious kind, everyone around you is like, oh, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Because they are oddly just as invested as it being okay as you are. That's correct for me. I think it's correct for a lot of people because it really, it either disrupts the status quo, it disrupts things as they are, it disrupts how you perceive somebody. It disrupts what a definition of alcohol. It, it makes you have to look, turn it around and look back at yourself. It's just, it's too disruptive. And so everyone is maintaining it. There you go. So uh, Joel is a seven and Elizabeth is a four. What is the relationship for each of you between alcohol and feelings? Man, it's a good tool. It's a good weapon because mm. negative feelings, bad feelings, alcohol numbs it. Mm. And like I said earlier, good feelings, good times, we can exacerbate it with alcohol. And awesome. so it, so there's no, there's no bad time for alcohol. Right, <laughs> right. There is no bad time for alcohol. I think because fours are so volatile and because they get so attached to their feelings and feel... Like they may not end, you know. That alcohol is a way to get off the carousel of all that, and um, it it's like a fake equilibrium, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, once now that I'm sober, I that's also I think a really hard part. But I would also say it leads to satisfaction. So what's hard about it is everything that comes up that is is um difficult or as stressful or whatever um I just have to deal with it I just have to deal with it in real time and I had to learn how to do that but I would say as a four the longer I've done that and the more satisfaction I feel in being in life and dealing with things as they come I mean that I think that that's part of bringing up the doing right it's part of yes, it is. finding well, that, that leads to a question I have for you, mm-hmm. or for, well, because I, this has been on my mind a little bit lately. My thought is that when I was drinking, and my theory that I'm asking about is when someone's in their addiction, does their dominant just go through the roof more dominant, and the more they go, their repressed center just become more and more repressed? Because I feel like that's what and even the supporting center lessons, like the dominant just become, you know, so I would monster beast. Yeah. So I, so for you, that I'm, would be thinking. Yes. And for Elizabeth, that would be feeling mm-hmm. what supports thinking for sevens doing. is doing. And what supports feeling for fours is thinking. And then what's repressed for sevens is feeling and what's repressed for fours is doing for everybody who's listening. Um, so what you're saying is, Joel, that sevenness just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, 
And even your support center, which would be doing, mm-hmm. gets smaller and feeling is. And that, that I think that's where, you know, when I said that I didn't think about the problem until the last second. Right. I think that's when the doing ran out. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think I was thinking, so with mine, you know, I had, I had lies going on. I At the time, uh, I owned the restaurant and so, and I had the girlfriend and the family that I'm lying and the friends to everyone because I'm not handling the business that I need to handle and so on. So I'm thinking about all this stuff, drinking more to think about how I'm going to handle the next day and then I'll go handle the next day or how to handle the next week or the next event. And so, and, and no feeling, like I said, it's all about me mm-hmm. and no, and, and I don't want to feel the, any of the bad stuff or the reality of what's going on. So then it got, like I said, I got to the point where I didn't want to do any more the next day. It was, no I was tired. I, I couldn't, I couldn't do any more. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so interesting to me because I, I'm so aware when people run out of feeling or when they run out of doing, mm-hmm. but I, I, I had thought about running out of thinking. What you thinking there? Sir, running out of thinking. I never run out of thinking. Right. That's why I'm asking. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, this question is still on the table, though. We'll be back. What? what? What was the question? Sorry. If you if if you think in when one's in their addiction, mm-hmm. is it just? Yeah, I think it was monster more, feeling. Was it polarized? Yeah, it was very polarized, and I fooled myself into thinking that I was managing all of it, and that I, you know, that I was fairy, that I had it all going mm-hmm. on, right? That I was just way too much um feelings all over the place that were not managed and um except I wasn't I was almost like I was unsinned with those feelings like I was not internalizing them in a way that was helpful or productive so I was just putting them all over everybody but not really processing what that what that meant or what it was costing or everybody or whatever and so you know what the reason I quit is because I was lying there and not Henry, who was, a, you know, I don't know. How old is he? Uh, Seven eight. years ago. Eight years old. Yeah, he was eight. And he had just gotten out of the bathtub. And he was just staring at me at the end of the bed because I was going to have, I was throwing up. And I kept getting up out of the bed to throw up. And. He, he was about to ask me with his big little eyes, like, where are you going, Mommy? You know, And then he just stopped in the middle of his sentence and was staring at me at the end of the bed. And he's like, oh. And I, and I saw that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am not that mother. I am, he is not normalizing this. And so. That's tough. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. What you got over there? What you thinking? <laughs> Oh my goodness. Uh, I was just thinking back to, you know, we talked about not being able to do anything about it when you were in the drinking. The, mm-hmm. the times where we tried to talk about it, your your response was, you are stepping on my joy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh! <laughs> That's really hard to respond. What do you say to that? What do you say to that? What do you that? say to that? 
Um, so that's, I mean, I knew I Headaches had to just, are wily, man. Yeah, I knew wily I had to shut up till I, till I came up with a, a, big, a bigger weapon. It would <laughs> be so interesting to me. Don't to edit me. I would <laughs> say, don't edit me. I've been edited my whole life. You are not going to edit me. The thing that I am really wondering is about right this minute is after this podcast airs, Oh, and no. that those two lines have been out there for a while. We're going to start getting emails about, can you get my wife to stop saying, don't edit me? <laughs> <laughs> can you get my daughter to stop saying, you're stepping on my joy? Those two lines are going to go viral. I guarantee it. I like the stepping on my joy thing. Yeah, okay. yeah I bet you do. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there was one time where I acted. And, and I think this was um, a lead, maybe a lead up to, I think it was a positive step ultimately. So I remember we were out at somebody's house and, mm-hmm. and we needed to get home and put the children to bed. And there was an event we wanted to go to. Somebody was having a fashion, a friend of ours was having a fashion show. I knew it was at Inso, it was downtown and we needed to get there. So I left Elizabeth at our friend's house and I'll go put the kids to bed. She'd been drinking wine with a friend and I said, meet me at the house in 30 minutes um, and um, and we'll go and I'll go get them squared away. And so I went and put the kids to bed and got changed and was waiting and waiting and I started calling the house where they were, no answer. And I started calling the friend with whom she was drinking on her cell phone. Elizabeth didn't have a cell phone at this time. No answer. I thought, okay, I get it. I see what's going on. I'm just gonna, so I went and got my brother and gave him the baby monitor and I said, I'm just not going to say another word. And off I went. And um, I got a phone call from Elizabeth about an hour later. And she said, where are you? And I said, well, I'm down where we agreed we were going to go. And you didn't show up. So I went. She said, well, come get me. And I said, no. Wow. And um, she was furious. And she said, I get it. You're changing the rules on me. And I'm oh. Up. So that was the one time we actually had a... I mean, it didn't feel productive at the time. But it was. But I think it was. And, and, uh, and your changing was, the rules on me happened how long before you decided? A couple of years, probably. Yeah, it was a while. It was a couple I had of to years. Get, I, had to, I had some... A lot of work to do. I had a lot of work yeah, to do, yeah. 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 But I think that was a step in the right direction, and that was my ability to um, actually step back, mm-hmm. which was hard. Okay, we gotta wrap it up again. Darn it! I could, you know, I could just keep talking and talking, but at, you know, people have limited time to listen to us, as it turns out. <laughs> so, I, I want to go around the table with this uh, to close this podcast. And um, so, here's what I'd like: the sentence I'd like for you to complete as a and your number, whatever your number is. One thing I'd like people to know that I think would be helpful in relationship to addiction. Mm-hmm. So I'll start. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a two, uh, one thing that I'd like for people to know that I think would be helpful in relationship to addiction is that it is really, really easy to dress up codependence as loving and caring and generous and kind and invested and protection. There are so many ways that I uh, was able, and I, you know, I still have all the capacity to do it, 
to reframe every enabling thing I was doing mm. as somehow loving and good. Mm. And so if you're uh, not the identified addict, which I wasn't, Joel was, and you're instead the codependent, mm -hmm. then you have to have somebody tell you the truth too. You know, I got help because somebody told me the truth. So my man said to me, um, you know, you need to go um, to an Al-Anon meeting because you are codependent and your two sons are really going to struggle if you don't get some help. Hmm. To which I said, you don't know me at all. <laughs> now listen to this line. You don't know me at all. And here's the next line that's so good. And you have no idea how well I love my son. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And he said, well, I'm going to call you back tomorrow morning. Oh, wow. That's a good friend. So um, I'd never met this person. Oh, my goodness. Not a friend. I'd never met him. So he called me back the next morning. And he said, so today, yesterday you described for me how much you love your sons. Today I'm going to do the describing. Wow. He said, I have a sponsee. Um, she's addicted to heroin. And her mother loves her so much. She doesn't want her to go to the neighborhood where she has to buy the heroin because it's not safe. So she goes and buys it for her. If you want help, it'll take 365 days in a row and you have my phone number. Wow. And I would have never quit helping. Right, right. I would have never, I, I can't imagine that I would have ever stopped helping because I really thought that's what I was doing. Right. So as a two, that's what I wish. Huh. Um, I think as a four, I saw alcohol as a way to sort of make make fluid the connections I was desiring, you know. And really what it was doing is just giving me an illusion of connectedness. And also it was actually destroying most connectedness, right? Um, and I think there was a real fear and all that that one, if I wasn't doing that, that I would be abandoned that people would think I was not fun. And so there was, there was a real fear there. But, I mean, the joy is that being sober and being in a room with people, whether they're partaking or not, that to be authentically yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and to know that you can do it, that you got it, that I'm managing and even if I'm not, even if I'm feeling like social anxiety in the situation, which I didn't even know I had social anxiety until I started doing sobriety work, you know, uh, to know like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm feeling this way, but I'm just gonna step in here and ask somebody a bunch of questions and get through it. To have the satisfaction of just kind of never abandoning myself and managing all that is. Uh, it's just, it's a joy. And then I, I think my friends would say, I'm, actually, I've had a, fr a couple of friends say to me lately that, um, because, uh, yeah, well, I won't get into that, but a couple of friends have told me lately that I'm more, that I'm more fun and I laugh more and I'm more mm -hmm. there. Yeah. So, great. Thanks. Mm -hmm. 
So as a five who's not the designated addict in a relationship with um, somebody who's the designated addict, I would say the thing that seems to come up every now and then is when Elizabeth is having a moment of struggle um, and maybe being emotional in a way that strikes me as irrational. <laughs> that uh, happens frequently. Um, yes. She has to remind me that, you know, hey, you're dealing with an addict mm-hmm. and and don't expect everything to be logical and give me room to work through this. And so that, I think, as a five, it's important to give the other person the room to have that. And That's such a smart way to deal with you, too, because it's right in your head. It, you get to think about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's scary for you, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and it's it, seems, scary. it seems messy and scary and, and, and irrational and, like, what's going on here? This is this doesn't make any while. You're just sinking back into that crazy stuff. Yeah. And like, you need to just step back and give it a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or go to a meeting. Yeah, or go yeah. to a meeting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, when I start when I start making up stuff, when I when I get off the rails making up stuff, which I'm quite good at, I, I have to have help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to. I have to go to therapy, go to a meeting, or make a phone call. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you went before me because that was a great answer, and I'll take the same answer as a seven who is the addict that it doesn't have to make sense mm. like that. That has been knowing that and using that in and out of sobriety mm-hmm. with people, with myself, with life, is that because I try everything needs to make sense, be logical, mm-hmm. if this is happening, then this should happen, and so on. And that just is not the truth. <laughs> I try to make everything happen when I was drinking and, you know, just pull the house down on top of me. But it doesn't have to make sense. And life has just gotten so much better. And people do, yeah, people enjoy you more. You know, I had my one of my best friend's uh, girlfriend at the time. Uh, I had no clue that she hated me. <laughs> right, right. Not a clue. I was like, I'm, and now they're married, and and she, whenever I came back, uh, ever since I've been back, she is crazy about me and, and about Jolie and our family and so on. And it, you know, when I talked with her about it, it, it is that. She, she explained things, and I'm like, that, that doesn't line up. It doesn't have to line up mm. and things with with my wife who's one. It doesn't the big go I can fall back on is it doesn't have to make sense. And like we like talked about relationship with other family members yeah. who are different numbers, is that I don't have to get it for it to be okay. And for it oh, and for it to that's be right. So good. Yeah. That's like, so good. Um, we all need that, don't yeah. we? And yeah. just the world needs that. I think we'll close with that. Thank you all so much. I'm just so grateful. And I will put it out there and hope that it's really helpful to another two, seven, four, five, <laughs> eight, nine, one, three. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.